you. Okay, so it's uh, a great pleasure for our second half to be able to introduce Mike Haas. Mike is a uh, MIT alumnus, a Microsoft alumnus. Started uh, at some point uh, buying computing gear off uh, off eBay. I don't know when. I remember getting a call from him a couple of years ago because he'd bought uh, an IBM 029 card punch, and they had put this 400-pound thing on a pallet, like you know, in front of his garage, and. Actually, he's enough younger than me that I believe you never punched cards. I did, I did one summer when I was in high school. One summer, okay. And uh, so uh, I, I, I remember heading over to, uh, to uh, their house and uh, you know trying to move this gigantic thing off its pallet. And the scary thing was how fast. And most of you are a lot younger than me and don't remember IBM drum cards and things like this. This is the way you made these monster key punches skip and duplicate and stuff like that. And somewhere from 30 years before, I, I was able to dredge up all this garbage about how you punch these drum cards in order to make the, uh, make the key punch do these crazy things. It's amazing uh, what stuff you have in your brain that keeps you from incorporating new stuff. <laughs> anyway, the great news is Mike has purchased uh, a lot of World War II encryption equipment and has been kind enough to come over tonight and uh, talk to us about uh, crypto during World War II and uh, these uh, cipher machines and the breaking of the ciphers. We are going to end at 20 after 9 because uh, Mike and his wife have a plane to catch. So we're leaving even if, uh, if uh, we're not done. So it's important to stick to that time schedule. Mike, thanks so much for being here tonight. Okay, great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right, so uh, yeah, my talk today is primarily about the Enigma machine, but I have brought some other coding machines with me as well. And, and uh, my talk is not going to be so much technical, but I really found it fascinating. I'd read a lot about the Enigma machine, and um, it seems so daunting and kind of complex. And my goal uh, tonight is to really say it's basically a very simple operating machine, and, and everyone here shall know We'll know exactly how it operates and be able to simulate it on, with a piece of paper. So uh, that's one of my goals. And we'll also talk about some other, other machines uh, after that. So the history of the Enigma machine is it, it started out as a, for business communication. The uh, German, uh, I think German, Arthur Scherbius in 1918 actually developed the basic uh, device for uh, encoding business communications. Um, and the German Navy picked it up in 26, and um, and they they then analyzed it and developed it some more, and they created a modified military version. And I'll explain what it is that they did to modify it. And uh, then later on in the war, they actually added some additional elements to to make the uh, to make the system much more difficult to break, and uh, which had major implications for the the course of the of World War II. So the Enigma machine is, is what's called a rotor machine. Um, it has these three rotors inside the machine, and, uh, and it uses an electrical current that goes through those rotors. But it's not really an electronic device. It's primarily a mechanical device. And electricity is just a convenient way of, of hooking up a key press to a light bulb. And it basically just lights up a light bulb every time you press a key. So this is this is the uh, a very nice schematic diagram of uh, how an Enigma machine works. You see, you have uh, a keyboard and a 26 keys. It's not QWERTY. It, the Germans use a QWERTZU keyboard, or at least they did back then. I'm not sure today what they do. Um, and it has 26 lights. And uh, the keys, wh when you depress a key, it closes a, a switch. 
which then, uh, you know, you have a battery in there, and then there are wires, there, the 26 wires come out of the keyboard and they start to go through the rotors. And each rotor <coughs> is basically a permutation of the alphabet. So on the right-hand side of the rotor, there is a, uh, actually I can, let me, let me go ahead and start to take out a uh, physical rotor here for you to look at as I'm talking. Where the camera oh, <laughs> down here? Uh, there we go. So here are the here are the rotors themselves, and uh, there's three on a spindle, and um, you can see on on one side of the rotors we have these pins, and they're they're on a little spring-loaded pin. There are 26 pins going around here, and on the other side there are 26 contacts. So when this machine is uh, when this rotor is placed into the machine. The, the keys that you press here make a connection to one of 26 contacts on the right-hand side, and then that will connect to one of these pins here. And then inside each of these rotors is are 26 wires that are kind of randomly connecting these pins to these uh, plates on the other side. And so each of the three rotors is like that, and so those connections uh, make their way through all, all three rotors. So you get you basically get a permutation of the alphabet from each rotor. You permutate once through here, through here, and then through here. And then finally, there's something on the machine called a reflecting rotor, which in this machine is not actually a rotor at all. It's basically, uh, I think it's called the Umkewalzer in German. It's a stationary rotor. Um, and it basically just reflects 13 of these pins are connected to 13 other pins. And so it does a reflecting operation. And now we're going to go. We're going to go all the way back through all three rotors again, permuting the inverse permutation back through all three rotors, and then out to this connection again. And that's also connected to these lights, and then a light will light up. So, um, and you can see that in this diagram, where uh, you know, if you followed the letter A, what did I do with the stylus? Oh, yeah, I got it. You followed the letter A. Um, well, actually, A is hard. A goes kind of goes off the top here, <coughs> and uh, comes back through here, comes around, back through here, here, and then it goes through the reflecting rotor. Sweet. Are you seeing the? Yeah, ink? no, but we're going to shift to red. So. Oh, okay. Okay. So you press the a, the A key; it'll come out through here, and it, we just follow the wires through here as best I can. I think I'm doing it properly. And uh, then, down where the does this guy go? <laughs> to the bottom. That looks like it goes backwards, which is like a mistake in the drawing. No, just to the bottom. Okay, down here, okay. Great, back to here. Here, boom. And so you press the letter A, and then the C would light up. Now, one of the things to notice is that because of the properties of this reflector here, uh, you're always going to get a reflective. Uh, uh, a reflective property of the system. So if I press the letter A, I'm going to get a C to light up. But if I press the letter C, I'm going to get the A to light up. So it's a symmetrical cipher. It's it's every letter. It's basically a pairwise substitution of all the letters of the alphabet. And that that so no matter what these rotors do here, because they all go through this reflector at the end, when you unwind all the permutations, you're you're always going to end up with a pairwise substitution. So that means that when you take an Enigma machine to, and set it up to encode a message, then you, you set it back to the original state again, and to decode the message, you, you don't have to do anything to the machine separate. There's no encode mode or decode mode. So
So, um, so that's that's the basics of how it works. And I'm going to describe a little bit of the protocol or the procedures that were used in in actually using the machine because that some of these protocols actually had a lot to do with how they attacked the machine and what kind of weaknesses it had. Um, so this is a picture of the uh, of the rotors themselves. Um, and first, uh, if you actually go sit down and uh, want to read about how an Enigma works, I was very confused when I first read about how to how to operate an Enigma because there were a lot of things they talked about that I didn't understand. It seemed, didn't seem to make a lot of sense. I knew about these rotors, but they had this. Uh, this thing called a ring setting, and like, what is a ring setting? I didn't really understand that. Um, I'll go down here to, to show that. One of the one of the key features of an Enigma rotor is this little notch, <laughs> and this notch is basically what controls the uh, odometer-like feature of the Enigma. So, one of the reasons the Enigma is more secure than just a simple, you know, cipher is that the code changes for every letter. So every time you press a key, not only did it go through that whole uh, step of encoding that letter and lighting a light, but the, the, the rotors also move for every letter. So now you have a different permutation for every letter of your message. And to control that motion, uh, the right-hand rotor always moves, so it's always just kind of ticking over. But then the, this notch actually controls when the rotor to its left will move. So you can't really see on the television camera inside the, inside the machine itself, but there are these, um, there are these three paws. Oh, you can kind of see them moving there. There are these three paws that are in there, and they're, they're kind of like on a spring. You can see I can push them back with my finger. So they don't, they, if, if they don't line up with one of these notches, they just kind of slide along the wheel, and they don't do anything at all. But if they line up with a notch, they will it'll be like a ratchet and it'll, it'll click that wheel over one. So the position of this notch tells you when the next rotor is going to move over. And so what is a ring setting? A, it turns out that this notch, the position of this notch is not, um, is not static with respect to the wiring pattern here. You can move the notch around in a circle to any one of 26 positions. Sorry, Mike, is the wiring pattern fixed or can you reprogram The wiring that? is fixed for each wheel. Like this wheel is number three. Wheel number three has a very specific wiring done in the factory and nobody ever opens it to, to change it unless you know, it needs to be repaired. It's not arbitrary. I'm sorry. It's I'm, and I don't know uh, how the Germans designed the wiring pattern. As soon as far as I know, it was randomly selected okay. at some point, uh, but then then it's fixed. Um, so the ring setting basically lets you decide uh, how the rotors are going to move. You know, at what position will they actually kick over and rotate the the wheel to its left? So so that um, that's that matters. If you want to, if you know the starting position of the of the wheels, you could get confused if you don't know where the rot the the notch is, because all of a sudden the code will change, and that means the center rotors changed on you, and uh, you know you you just didn't know where the notch was in the right place. So uh, so that's how that works. So. Um, 
So that's how we start out with it, it, the Germans would publish a code book that would have uh, a one month worth of keys. And so the key setting for the machine starts out with the ring setting. So every day, <coughs> and they mostly did this on a 24 hour cycle, they would set, they would have a book and you'd look up, okay, the key, the ring settings, I'd have to set that notch position to one of 26 positions for each wheel. For my case, we're going to just leave them all on AAA and because uh, it's kind of a complexity that's, it doesn't really change the the fundamental coding mechanism it just changes when that wheel actually rotates and when we when uh, if you've looked at that paper enigma that I created uh, it doesn't have any ring setting so it doesn't simulate the ring setting it just kind of assumes it's at AAA question San Diego yeah you basically mentioned that those those wheels had numbers like the three on that one. Now, did each Enigma machine come with its own set, or you know, if one of those broke, can you order another number three to replace the number three that broke in yours? Yeah. So the question was, did each machine come with its own set of wheels? Is that right? Or that's right. Or or were those wheels interchangeable? You know, if the wheel broke, you just ordered a wheel through the serial number, or was each each Enigma equipped with its own set of wheels? And once it broke, you had to order a whole new set. Yeah, well, each Enigma, I mean, the, the way the German communication system worked is there was a lot of, you know, uh, in order to, to uh, each kind of um, area of battle would, like, they would share, anyone who would ever have a need to communicate with everyone else, they all need to share the same keys. So uh, they would, uh, these were very standardized, and, and I believe that absolutely every Enigma of the same type, they all had the same they all had the same set of wheels, and in fact, every Enigma machine you look at, there's a, they're very obviously uh, secretive about controlling the distribution of, of anything that's as secret as these wheels. These were, these were things that they would that people were told to, you know, kill themselves rather than give up these wheels. And um, so uh, there was a lot of secrecy around protecting those. They're, each one is serial num has a serial number which is the same as on the box. On the back of the box here, I can see the serial number for the Enigma itself, and the same serial number is printed on each of these wheels. So they're matched set, but they are identical in manufacture to every other Enigma, but they wanted to control and make sure that they didn't lose them, they knew where it came from. Um, and later on in the war, they did add additional rotors. So there's a, there's a box of... I, don't ha I only have three of the original rotors, but there were, uh, I believe, a box of five, five or six available rotors to choose from, and that was one of the things they did to increase the complexity of, of breaking the Enigma. Question for Microsoft? Yeah. What was the state of the art in manual ciphers before these Enigma machines came on? Was this all done just by paper with a similar sort of cipher, or was it something else? Um, well, that's a good question. I, I actually do have uh, one of the earlier machines here. Uh, this, this is called a... Uh, uh, U.S. Army M94. Um, this is an example of a kind of a device that was used prior to the mechanical, the purely mechanical devices. Um, this machine was actually invented by the French uh, prior to in the in the 18th century, sometime, uh, made out of wood, and they're basically it's this is 25 rings with a random permutation of the alphabet on each of these rings. So there's, 20, so there's 25 wheels here um, with, uh, with the randomly permuted alphabet on them. 
And the way that this one would work, this device would work, is that you would, uh, you can rotate these wheels, you, you know, unscrew this and loosen it up. You can rotate all these wheels so that you can line up a message along, along in a row here. And the key, I'm sorry, the key here is what order the wheels are on this spindle. So that's the secret key and you, that you would have to know. So once you have that key, you, you put the wheels on in the right order, you line up your message here, and then to encode something, I think this is really clever, you just take any of the other 25 rows on this device, just choose it at randomly, and then that's your encoded message. You're going to have that, that line of characters. So you write that down on a piece of paper, you send it by courier. This was used during the Civil War as well, pretty extensively. Um, not this physical one, this, the aluminum one is, only came later on. Um, but uh, then when you receive the code, you would have to line up the encoded message somewhere here, and then it's your job as a human to recognize which, which of the other 25 lines actually had something in English to say to you. And, and hopefully, um, you wouldn't have the very bad luck of having one line say, attack at dawn, and the other line say, retreat immediately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty improbable. So this, this kind of a mechanical device was one example, but I think most of the prior state-of-the-art was paper and pe pencil systems. Um, there's uh, some famous, you know, just simple Caesar uh, codes. There's, uh, and actually... Um, how, much, how much does a device like that go for today, just out of curiosity? Which one? Not the paper one, the previous one. The M94, I think. M94, I think I paid $5,000 for this. This was the very first... So I'll tell you a story about that. This is a, a big segue, but this is fine. So when I was uh, nine years old, I had this book, which was uh, Martin Gardner's Code, Ciphers, and Secret Writing, which I thought, which really inspired me a lot. I loved, I loved the idea of writing secret messages. And in this book... He describes all kinds of interesting ciphers. A lot of them you know, answer your question about the early cipher systems that people used um, when they were developing, uh, you know, back from the Roman times where they would write, wrap papyrus strips around a, a, a rod. I think I call that a sky tail system. Um, and you can't see this on the camera very well, but here's a picture of the M94, which was in that book. And, uh, when I, when I read this, I, you know, I saw this as a nine-year-old thinking, oh, that would be so cool to have one of those things. Um, and uh, whenever I, you know, then through the 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever I would meet someone who was in, involved in antiques or some sort of, you know, obscure dealings like that, I would ask them, hey, have you ever seen one of these things? And, of course, nobody had. And so I had no way of knowing how to find one. And unfortunately for me, the Internet was invented <laughs> and eBay was invented, and uh, then I started scra you know, started looking on eBay for anyone selling anything like this, and and this was this was the first one to be sold on eBay, and uh, I think there were probably a lot of people like me who were looking for this thing. Uh, it got bid up. I remember the weekend uh, where the auction closed, and we were I was actually at my aunt's house using her dial-up connection to, to, to outbid all the other people who were, uh, who were trying to snatch this thing up. So um, this sold for 5000 but I think the very next one, someone else had one who sold one two weeks later that sold for only 3000 So uh, 
So I, I paid a little bit of a premium to get the first one. Okay. So on the slide here is a, an exploded view of what the inside of a rotor looks like. So you can see very finely crafted German engineering and, and, uh, and skill in, in creating this, this thing. Um, and you can see the wires kind of over on the left side, some of the wiring, uh, internal wiring for these. Okay, so what's the next part of the key uh, for an Enigma machine? And that's, called, that's the plugboard setting. This is also another feature that I do not have on the paper Enigma. Um, this was the innovation that the Germans added uh, basically after it was, the business kind of commercial machine did not have this. And the Germans recognized that there are only something like 17,000 positions of these rotors, um, 26 to the third power positions of the rotors, oh, times six, uh, three factorial for the ordering of the rotors. You can put them on in any order. And um, so they wanted a system that had many, many more possible uh, key sets than this, you know, millions and millions of keys. So what they did is they created this plug board on the front of the machine, and that basically just does an, an additional pairwise substitution of letters. So um, uh, if you plug, uh, as in this picture, the, the C is plugged into the M, uh, the C and M plug are, are plugged into each other, and uh, so that means where before, anytime, the effect of pressing the C key now is the same as the effect of pressing the M key instead, and vice versa. So it's just an, it's an additional pairwise substitution on top of the whole system. So again, because it's a static kind of system, you know, as an afterthought, kind of above, above and beyond the, uh, the rotary system, I didn't include it in the, the paper Enigma. You could, you could do that by hand later if you actually wanted to include the effect of a plug board. So did they usually plug in wires for every single letter? Yeah, the daily key usually had between six and ten different plugs that you would, you would plug in here. So there's a lot. So it's uh, 26 choose six or 26 choose ten possible combinations. It's millions of possible combinations. Okay, now a nod to my alma mater here. I'm going to use MIT for the initial rotor setting. So um, <coughs> the last component of the key... Um, is the initial position of the rotor. So it, it's also the, uh, well, it's the ordering. So you have the, uh, the ordering of the rotors on the spindle, the ring settings, then the, the, the plugboard settings, and then finally the, the starting position for the rotors themselves. And that's the same also. That's, you get this out of the code book, and it's the same every day. So uh, let me set up my machine now uh, to the uh, MIT setting, or you know, con my machine happens to have numbers instead of letters in the in the little windows on the front of the machine. So it's 13, 9, 20. So let's see. I, I have rotors one, two, and three here in order. Can you say that rotor one is on the left, and that has the setting M? That's correct. So what did I say? Uh, thirteen nine twenty. So thirteen nine and twenty. So now the Enigma machine is ready for use. So ready to begin. Okay. Now there's a fundamental problem if you if every message sent that it sent today, you have thousands of military messages being sent every day. Um, 
if they just use the code book, then every message would be sent with the exact same key settings. And even though it's changing for each and every letter, the nth letter of the message is being sent with the exact same simple alphabetic substitution cipher. You know, even though it's it's, a, it's arrived at this complicated mechanism of you know permutations and rotors and things like that. Um, and so if you think about it in the German, you know, if all these messages are in German, if I do a frequency analysis of the nth, you know, the twentieth letter of every message sent that day. I will tend to get a very unique distribution of letters, you know, it's, it's that reflect the distribution of the letters in the German language. And uh, that would, if, so if every message actually were encoded that way, I could do kind of this uh, parallel uh, analysis where I, I take all thousand messages I've intercepted that day, look at the 20th column, do a frequency distribution, and guess letters for that, the 20th position. And then in the 21st position, I could go do the same thing again. And so by that method, you could actually go and crack that if you have a lot of, you have enough traffic. So they, Germans were not stupid. They were quite aware of this uh, uh, phenomenon. And they, um, they took care of it by allowing the operator to choose a totally unique key for his message. So the only thing that the codebook key was used for is just to send what's called an indicator. And or a uh, you know sometimes called initialization vector. If you read other kind of cryptography, uh, uh, kind of modern cryptography systems, you have a, a way of initializing your system, and that um, that you want to choose to be a, like a random number. And so uh, uh, I'll choose uh, MCK, my initials, to be, uh, which is probably a pretty poor choice if you know the message is coming from me. Um, and that's going to be what I'm going to use for the rest of my message. So, um, um, so what all I what I what the Germans decided to do is that they were very, um, you know, the Germans are very uh, uh, detail-oriented people. They don't want to make mistakes. They want to uh, make sure that everything's going to work very smoothly. So they decided to send that message indicator twice. And uh, you know, so you could catch an error. It's, you know, if you miss the message indicator, you will have no hope of decoding the rest of the message. So I said, well, instead of just putting it out there once, and, and all these things, remember, are being sent with Morse code eventually. Um, so you know, they, all the messages are being coded manually on the Enigma machine, written down on paper, and then sent to a code operator who would tap it out in Morse code. And then another guy on the other end listening to Morse code with a lot of static and so on writing down the message, and then finally taking it to his enigma where they would type it out and try to decode the message. So it's, and if, they, if they just miss one letter, uh, they wouldn't be able to read the message at all. So I said, let's give him two shots to get the message. And so uh, in my case, the beginning of my message would then begin MCK, MCK. And then that would, that would start out every German message that was sent using the enigma would have, would have these six letters which were the message indicator. But instead of, you know, obviously they can't, they don't want to send that in the clear, so they encoded them. So they use the machine to encode them. So in my case, uh, if I type MCK, and here we'll see if more machine works here. M, uh, and so if I see I pressed the M down and the, the N light lit up. Um, and then C, now the W light lights up. And uh, then I press the K, and the D light go lights up. Now I'm going to repeat it again, MCK again. I get an S, an H, and an E. Okay, so now when I because one or more of the rotors have 
Every, that, that, that right hand rotor is changing every time. So if you look at the machine, if I sit here and, and press one letter, the letter P, I get an H now, now I get a J, and now I get an S, and now I get a V, and now I get a B, and it's changing every, every letter of the, of the uh, cipher. So, um, so I've just sent my message indicator. And so what will actually be sent out in Morse code is NWDSHE. And uh, the operator on the other end uh, will, will know how to decode that and then figure out that I said MCK, MCK. So now for the rest of my message, I set up the machine with the MCK setting. Uh, so that's 13.3.11 in my case. Okay. Um, what, did I go backwards? Okay, so then I type the body of my message. So uh, in this case, I have the message Enigma revealed. And I, I won't go through the whole thing, but uh, uh, the E goes to a Q. The N goes to an M. The I goes to a J, etc. So, so if, you, if you go through the whole message, Enigma revealed go, gets to... Uh, Congito Jiffer. Um, so, uh, San Diego. Pardon me. A uh, yeah. question from San Diego. Go ahead. Uh, so, when the operators are supposed to choose these indicators randomly, yeah, when they're sending the message. Um, do you have any sense for how good the operators were at choosing these, or whether sometimes same indicator would be repeated and leak any information that way? Well, what do you think? <laughs> human nature, yes. Um, the average, the average code operator was probably a 19-year-old, um, and uh, they were often like the initials, their girlfriend's initials, uh, uh, HIT and LER. Those were very popular uh, message keys. Um, BER and LIN. Um, so or QWE. You know, consecutive letters on the keyboard itself. You know, they're racking their brain. Oh, what do I use this message? And uh, yeah, they 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 often chose pretty poor uh, message keys. So does this help at all? Or just as bad to just use the code book? Well, they always use the code book to encode their message key. But then that the whole the rest of the message was something just the operator decided on their own. So like if you had the code book and it, and you listened at the beginning, did you just get this get this key? Uh, yes, yes. So you don't need that. So now, if you want to just guess what those codes are, if you had an Enigma machine and you just wanted to guess uh, these common, uh, mistaken, uh, really poorly chosen indicators, you don't need the code book at all because it, it's irrelevant at that point. So that was really bad, and it did happen quite a bit. So uh, uh, that was one of the breaks that that they used um, in solving solving it. Um, so again, like I said, the setup for decoding is just the same as, as encoding. You start out, you set it up to the daily key, you type in that NWDSHE, you confirm that it decodes to a, a, a valid looking message key, two, thing, you know, two three letter groups that are identical, and you set it up like that, and then because it's a symmetric machine, uh, then you just set it up exactly the same way and then type in the code and you get the original message. Question, so, so a question? Yeah, yeah, question here. So initially, they had the code books, and then when did they go to where they the operators were basically allowed to set their own? 
initialization key? Oh. Always. I, I think from the beginning they always did that, I believe. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, do you have a Yeah, a question. Uh, so I, I, I think there's no space key, right? There's no space key. For a reason? Uh, I don't know, just economy. Um, you know, telegrams typically didn't have spaces necessarily either, and you just get blocks of blocks of letters. No space in Morse code. Um, I'm sure there is a space in Morse code. I don't happen to know it. It's not. It's not normally. You just leave space. Yeah, you just leave space in the air. Yeah. Well, and typically you'd send these messages in five-letter groups on the air, so you just chunk it up into five-letter groups and and send it that way. Otherwise, you'd be able to guess, like, just by length of words. Yeah. Time. Now, a really interesting aspect of the Enigma machine, because it is, uh, you know, I can talk a little bit about um, some of the uh, security uh, uh, problems with it, is that uh, because it has this symmetric encoding ability, uh, a letter can never encode to itself. You know, so if I type an A, I will never get the A light to light up, no matter what the machine setting is. So now take, for example, suppose you have a guess about what a message might be, like, or it might mention something, like, say, and a pretty long phrase, like, um, uh, Herr Kommandant uh, Frankenschnitzel, you know? <laughs> a lot of message traffic would begin with a very formalized German, you know, dear Herr Kommandant, you know, Frankenschnitzel, you know, I, I'm sorry to report that we lost a refrigerator in the field or something. I don't know, whatever. So, but all those messages would begin with like these very formalized long phrases. That's long enough that if you just took letters at random, you know, so say you had, the, I don't know how many letters that is, but, you know, say you have 25 letters there. Um, it's unlikely that if you choose 25 letters at random, none of them are that that none of them are going to like. Uh, you'll get at least one letter to be matching up. You know, just at random, you have 25 chances for one of them to line up. So what the, some of the code breakers would do is they would guess phrases and then they would take that phrase and just pass it along uh, the Enigma ciphertext. And if there's ever a case where absolutely none of the letters are, are matching the original message letter, then that's a possible location for that word to actually be the, encoded, the word you're trying to encode there. And so that would give, then give them a, a clue about what the <coughs> machine settings could possibly be. So that, that's a kind of a, it's a, it's a subtle vulnerability, but uh, it was used, it was used uh, to, to help break into codes. Question, question about that? San Diego? Yeah. Um, how much of the actual protocol for the use of the machines did the allies know when they were working on breaking the codes? Well, okay, the story of breaking the codes is actually um, goes back to the Poles. Um, the, it, back before the outbreak of war, before the, the Poland was invaded, <coughs> uh, Poland was, of course, very nervous about the increase in German uh, military force, and, uh, and uh, they... They knew about the Enigma machine. You know, it predated a. Uh, you know, it was a, a well-known device uh, used in business communications, and they had they had a good idea that the military was using um, uh, this kind of a machine, and they actually did uh, do a lot of the early work, and and they understood quite well how it was being used in practice. And um, uh, I think one of the one of the really interesting stories is that the uh, in Warsaw they recruited the most brilliant mathematicians that they had in that particular class that year and said, 
how would you just like to work on breaking code? And um, they actually came up with very innovative ways of attacking this machine uh, by making, uh, it sounds pretty tedious now with lack of a computer, but they actually made catalogs of, uh, of uh, the characteristics of how each, each setting of the machine would uh, permute the alphabet. Um, it's, it's a little complicated. Uh, I get kind of lost about it myself, but basically, if you think of like any one setting of the rotors, and you have um, and you have these this message indicator capability, where you, you know that the first six letters are always repeated, uh, or the first three letters are repeated again. Um, you can make a correlation between the first letter and the fourth letter of the of the message, uh, because you know both of those were were originally typed with the same letter. But you know, in one case, you know, an A might be a Q, and the next time the A will be a Z. So now Q and Z are somehow related by the fact that they're three steps away uh, on this particular rotor setting. And you can follow that. So if you had a machine, you could sit there and make a catalog. You can say, OK, for rotor position 111, I'm going to type A, and I see what, what letter I get. And then I'm going to take that letter and I'm going to reset the machine back to that position again and I'm going to type that letter. And you end up being able to catalog the permutation of the alphabet that relates the first letter to the, to the fourth letter. Um, and you will have a certain number of cycles, like you'll get some letters, some letters will be the same, in, in fact. You know, sometimes just by chance the two permutations end up with the same letter. Or sometimes, you know, when the first letter's an A, the next one's a Q, and when the first one's a Q, the next one will be an A. So you'll get a little two-cycle in the permutation. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with cycle notation. If you write down a, any permutation, you can always write it as a, a series of cycles that are uh, kind of multiplied together in the, as a permutation. So any permutation of the alphabet has a kind of a signature. Like it might have three single cycles, two pairs, and then a five cycle, et cetera. So that signature is uh, a characteristic of that particular permutation, and it's related to which rotors are used in which position. And so what the, po what the polls would do is they would get enough messages during the day that you know, just operators at random are choosing letters on their, in their own, and they're basically giving them fodder to say, oh, you know what, when, whenever we saw a message where the first letter was, was M, the fourth letter is Q. And they would kind of add that little bit of evidence in until they had enough messages they could build up the entire permutation of <coughs> how, first and, how first and fourth letter were related. And then they had, so they did all this work up front to make 17,000 three by five cards describing every permutation and they sorted them topologically by their size of their cycles so that they can then go back and look it up. So when they got a, a bunch of messages during the day, they said, oh, the characteristic of today's rotor settings is five single uh, cycles, two double cycles, and a, and a five cycle. They go to their catalog and there's only four there's only four settings of the rotors that have that characteristic, so then they would just try those four. So it was able to kind of narrow down this much larger space down into just a, a few things that they could then do trial and error. Um, so that, that was really a brilliant observation by, by these early uh, mathematicians, and I'll, I'll have a little more on the slide on that later. Question? 
Yeah. Uh, so in regard to a letter never being ciphered back to itself, were the Germans aware of the vulnerability this introduced, and why would they have designed it that way? Um, I think they had, there was a kind of a sense of hubris involved in it. I think that they, they felt that they really had done a really great job at designing something that was really secure and uh, didn't bother them, that aspect. So, uh, you know, I think had they maybe had a stronger, you know, I don't know, I have not read very much about the German cryptanalytic or crypt, uh, cryptanalysis section. You know, the British actually created a really large organization to do breaking codes, and so it's always a good idea if you're, if you're generating codes yourself to have an equally or better team of people that are trying to break your own codes so that they can come up with all these things. And I don't know how much the Germans did do that, but they, they felt really confident in their machine. Um, and uh, they, I don't believe they ever really suspected uh, that their the machine could be broken. It just seemed too impossible. It's, it's so many combinations to, uh, to get through. They didn't realize there were these little shortcuts. Once they found out, once they learned about computers, did they think that they were in trouble? Well, the dimension of the computer is kind of uh, contemporaneous with the end of the war and, um, and actually kept as a, as a military secret as well. So the first stored program computers uh, in Britain were, was the Colossus, and it was, a, it was a secret up until the 70s, I believe. The British actually didn't reveal that they even had done such a thing. So... Uh, yeah, but wasn't the uh, Zeus, wasn't Zeus doing things? Yeah, what, I don't, I'm not as familiar with that. No. What was the year that Zeus came out with his computer? 36. What? <coughs> 36. 36. Yeah, so that, I mean, that would be a, a way to attack these machines, obviously, computers. So, uh, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question, how much they thought about that. Turing, by the way, I, again, Turing's involvement in Colossus, or maybe just a different machine, I forget, was only became known with this declassification of the 70s. So Turing was viewed as a pure sort of computational mathematician until the 70s when it was discovered that he was building hardware. Okay. So um, as, as for a letter mapping to itself, yeah, since um, you've got a current going through there, you'd have to have uh, 52 letters on your, on your rotors. If you had a letter come back to itself, it would close the circuit. Right, it was short. Yeah, uh, so it would have been a huge cost to map letters back to themselves. Well, you, you, uh, you, if you don't use a reflector, I think if they got rid of the reflector, you okay, could just put you, you could put lights on the far end of the permutation and yeah, then forget yeah. the reflecting. But then you'd have to Double. you'd have to have a different set of rotors to, to, or you'd have to put them in the opposite order backwards, mm -hmm. and set up the machine like or have a switch to like encode mode versus decode mode. And then you could get rid of that problem as well. So, uh, but they, they like the simplicity of having, you know, one one setup. Um, so I I don't know how many I don't know if you can raise your hands if you have cut out your paper Enigma and and have it ready to go. So Microsoft guys, those are doing good. UCSD pretty good. Berkeley, I don't see any hands. Yeah, there we go. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to walk you through, um, and I, you know, here in the room, I have some more at the back table. If anybody wants some more, and there's some scissors here, uh, we're going to walk through kind of doing this thing for yourself on paper. And, and I think you understand the concept, but uh, it's uh, it, uh, nothing like practical experience to really teach you whether you understand it or not. <laughs>
Huh? Oh yeah, I have half an hour to go. Okay, so I, I think we're doing okay. We have all Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the the paper enigma is basically my attempt to say to take uh, the 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 inner workings of an enigma machine and to realize them in a form that you can visually you know simulate it or manually simulate it. So um, if you take the strips of a paper enigma and you those strips represent the rotors. And instead of wires, I have two columns of letters where when the left, the right hand and left hand column of each, of each quote unquote rotor are equivalent, that means that there's a connection between those two things. Um, on the right hand side is what, what I'll call the input output. So that's the, the keyboard and light combination. And uh, so you start out, um, I think you start out with, uh, yeah, the settings of the machine, um, and the way you set the machine is just to have the the first three, the MCK setting of the machine is is how you'll first uh, position the rotors so that the M on the lines up in the the top row of the paper enigma of the first rotor. So you get MCK lined up across the top, but before you start, remember when you press that key down, the very first thing the Enigma machine does is it, it kicks that pawl over, and so the right-hand rotor always moves up one first. So in actuality, the, the coding will begin with the, the rotor setting MCL. Yeah, yeah. Everyone got it? Okay. Okay, so then we're going to start on the right-hand side. So you, you, you would type the letter E over here. This is great having a little drawing on the slide. This is great. Uh, and... Um, You'll find, find you, you'll go across to the, you'll find that it, just by coincidence there happens to be an E on the rotor itself uh, on the right hand side and then you look to the left hand side of that rotor and you'll see it's way down here um, where the other E is and that's kind of where the wire goes through and then we're gonna, the signal's going to exit out that <coughs> straight across to the next rotor and there you should see a Y on the right hand side and then find the Y, the, the corresponding Y on the left hand side. Is that, is that working for everybody? Yeah. And then straight across you get a V and then on the reflecting rotor you get a J so go look for, there's only one other J on here and you'll see it's there and then we come back through and it, just by coincidence it happens to be a J on the rotor again um, and you find it's matching J and that becomes a P, and you find it's matching P, and then you find a D, and it's matching D, and you finally come out at the letter Q, and that's the answer. So, and that matches exactly what the Enigma machine. So, I designed the paper, the paper wiring, as so to speak, is identical to the authentic German Enigma machine. So, you can you can uh, compatibly send paper Enigma messages that can be read by an actual German Enigma machine, as long as it has no plugboard settings and the ring settings are all one one one. Yeah, question. Isn't the position where these arrows are, you know, relevant to where the knock settings are? You said that's right. Yeah, you, you have to. So now, as you encode through multiple letters, you're going to move. You're going to always move that right-hand strip up for each successive letter. But then, when that little arrow, I have a little arrow on the left-hand side of the piece of paper. That's a notch. And when that notch is, when that notch appears on one rotor that will force the rotor to the left to also move up one notch. Now there's never a case where a rotor can move twice. Um, the only situations that can happen actually are right rotor moves once, um, right rotor and center rotor move once, or 
right rotor, center rotor, and left rotor move once. You can never have a case where right rotor moves and left rotor moves. So it's, it's not actually an odometer type mechanism because there's no true carry. There's no true carry system in, in the way the, the rotors work. Um, it, since it just uses these little notches, uh, you can get the center rotor actually moving twice in a row. Uh, it's kind of a stutter step. Um, and that actually was a difficulty for, what, for some of the cryptanalysis. When, when those stutters would happen, it would be surprising to them, and they'd have to kind of account for that and, uh, and maybe redo some some their trial and error guesses. So, um, yeah, so that's, this is when I talk about the rollover here. So when the notch arrow reaches the window, you move the one to the left. Um, and um, so what's the notch on the left rotor for them? Well, every rotor has a notch, and because you, you can put it in any position. Yeah. So. It's a design property. I don't know if it's a defect necessarily. It was much simpler to make it behave this way. Uh, they just wanted to make sure that you'd essentially travel through most of these 17,000 uh, positions of the rotor key space without repeating. They don't want it to repeat too soon. And so with three rotors, you'd have to have, you know, you're generally going to have pretty small messages, and they wanted to make sure that essentially you're going to never repeat, you know, any rotor position. And so they just essentially wanted it to, to approximate, you know, every possible combination of the rotors. And if they missed, you know, a few hundred actual positions that were never reachable, that's, that didn't really matter. So... <coughs> So that's how you do it, and if you there's a message at the bottom of the paper Enigma kind of example section. You can, uh, I, I think it just says Enigma revealed, but uh, it's it's that you can go through and make sure you understand how it works. And I think when you get to like the eighth letter or something of the message, you'll get one of these notch things <coughs> to roll over, and you'll have to make sure you kind of understand how that works right. Um, so I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about breaking an Enigma, and then I'll actually at the end uh, show some other machines as well that there were follow-ons to the Enigma machine. Um, so, like I said, they, they uh, recruited a bunch of uh, grad students from Poznan University and from the mathematics department. There was no computer science department for them to be associated with um, in 1929. And um, they did this mechanism where they, they cataloged the, uh, all three rotor positions, all, all possible rotor positions for three rotors. And they actually did, um, they actually built some devices as well, um, which were mechanical, stepping, um, I think to, in order to help them build these catalogs, uh, they, they built some mechanical machines that actually stepped through simulated Enigma machines um, and uh, stepped through these, these, possi these, these uh, different possibilities. Um, and um, what there, there is a, a story I've heard, I, I'm not completely sure it's true, but it's an interesting anecdote that uh, uh, the Germans at one point mistakenly sent a Enigma machine in a diplomatic bag or something or through the post to, war, to, their, to, a, to an ambassador in Warsaw, and the Poles were alerted to the fact that, hey, there's some you know, diplomatic pouch is coming through the mail. They held it at the post office over the weekend disassembled the machine, got all the wiring settings for the rotors, put it all back together, and then delivered it on Monday morning and with the excuse that, oh, our postal system is uh, very inefficient. I'm sorry we delayed your package. And uh, 
but then they were able to build, they knew, then they had the wiring settings for those rotors. So, uh, um, recovering the wiring settings would be extremely difficult if you didn't have that as a, as a hint. Um, and uh, so I don't, I don't think they ever did that directly. I think they used kind of espionage and, <coughs> and actually stole, stole those things. But the Germans added, um, at some point they added uh, additional rotors. Um, uh, let's see, go back. So this wasn't a five-rotor machine. It was this was a three substitutions for the three rotors. This was a different wires. Well, it was the? I think you, I'm not exactly sure of the chronology because some of the stories about this don't really set it, you know, completely in a timeline. And uh, but the uh, there were only three rotors in play um, as far as the poles had right. broken them. And um, but then the Germans added an additional two rotors into the set. And uh, so now they had five to choose from. And just the manual process of having to do this, it was both overwhelming the Poles and also the Germans were imminently going to invade Poland. <coughs> and uh, they, they realized they were, they were about to lose all ability to read the German messages. So they arranged for a meeting um, in, they tried to give it to the French first. They arranged for a meeting. Um, and the French kind of poo-pooed the whole thing, and they were too busy retreating. Didn't uh, <laughs> didn't didn't take didn't take any of the knowledge that they had. Um, but finally, they they made contact with the British, um, and uh, the British happily recognized that this was a very important uh, breakthrough, and they gave them everything they knew about the Enigma. They gave them a I think they gave them a uh, an actual model that they had built. They gave them you know the, all the knowledge of how they were doing these. Uh, these uh, uh, characteristic settings and things like that, and so now the British would then have to take over the effort of uh, of breaking the Enigma uh, on their own against a much harder system now with five rotors. So um, the British uh, started a, what they euphemistically called the the Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park, <coughs> and the way they recruited for the school was uh, they they took out an ad in the newspaper. The ad didn't say. Would you like to solve codes for a living? The ad said, "Would you like to enter a crossword puzzle contest?" <laughs> and uh, so there were thousands of, of Britons that uh, happily entered this contest. And uh, if you did very, very well, you were let into the back door. Uh, it reminds me kind of the uh, was it um, with Men in Black? Uh, they have that little Will Smith taking the test and. Uh, the other four recruits are not quite cut out for that sort of work, but occasionally they would find someone particularly brilliant, really great mind for solving puzzles, and uh, that's that's typically the qualifications that most cryptanalysts had, you know, up until this time. The, the amount of kind of theoretical mathematics being applied or technology uh, really wasn't a, a recruiting point, or wasn't really understood that that was an attribute that people would need. But they found these very clever people. Uh, that were great with language and, and great with puzzles, um, and that, that formed the basis of most of the cryptanalytic uh, staff at Bletchley Park. But they did they did have the fortune to hire mathematicians like uh, uh, Turing, and uh, and he did become involved, and and he had a lot to do. Um, he had a lot to do uh, with, uh, I believe, some of the techniques they used for mechanically. Uh, decrypting Enigma machines. They had a very clever system where they realized that, you know, similar to the <coughs> the cycles you could see in these characteristics, you know, messages. Um, a given setting of the rotor would would set up other kinds of permutations 
uh, between one position of the rotors and, so and following positions in the rotors, but um, without a lot of traffic necessarily being decoded, um, uh, figuring out which one of those it was, you could, be, you could do it through trial and error. And if you had a mechanical system to actually search through all those things looking for these cycles, uh, you could solve codes. And so uh, they built these things called, with the poles actually, their machine they called a bomb. And so in, uh, in, you, in the Bletchley Park, they also called their machines bombs. Now these were not truly computers per se. They were also electromechanical devices. Purely, I mean, you, I guess you could, they were not really stored program computers. They're very special purpose machines that would purely step through combinations of Enigma rotor wheels. Um, but they were cleverly programmed to recognize a particular type of a cycle. So they would, I think, I think they would use kind of guesses about uh, mess, uh, text that would be in the message. And then using that guess, they would wire up these plug boards that would detect a cycle between like the first letter of the message, the fifth letter of the message, and the third letter of the message, and eventually kind of coming back to the same letter. Uh, and um, so they would kind of work on these little puzzles to figure out how to program these bombs to recognize uh, a, a, once they saw a, a, a cycle like this, and then they had just these, you know, simulated like enigmas that were uh, like, uh, you know, multiple uh, enigmas at a time, kind of all churning through this. And they had banks of them in, filled in the whole room. And uh, the, they used the women, uh, the, the Navy, uh, how are they, Wrens in, uh, in Britain? Uh, the women would man these bombs, they'd program them, and then they'd just stand there patiently in front of their machine, making sure it was operating properly. And then a bell would go off. Uh, when it found a potential position uh, that might solve today's code. And it was, it, they, they were interviewed later on once they were allowed to talk about it and they felt like it, they had kind of won the lottery when their particular machine was the one that rang the bell that day and they were, you know, got really excited about it. Um, uh, the, other, the other thing I can just mention for, uh, just uh, on Turing, the other system that he actually broke uh, and had a lot I think probably, I don't know the, the relative ranking of the difficulty of the problem, but the, uh, there was another system called FISH. Uh, the British called it TUNI or TUNI, I think it's like a tuna fish. Uh, they would, um, uh, it was a teletype system that basically was just an XOR. It was a, it was a system that created kind of these random five-bit uh, sequence of letters and they'd XOR those letters with the message and then automatically send that down a teletype wire. So it, was, it wasn't a system that was like manual like this. It was a totally automated system. I press a key in, in Berlin and then on, you know, in Vichy, France, you know, the, the, the result pops out on the other side on a teleprinter. And um, so that system was a very high-level system used primarily by direct communications, upper-level command. Hitler uh, himself had used that system for messages to his you know, high level, high level generals and so on. So that was a really important system for them to solve and, and that was one that Turing used, uh, the Colossus machine. So Colossus was not used to solve the Enigma machine itself, it was used to solve this other machine, this fish machine. And Colossus was uh, it purported to be the first stored program compu digital computer. Um, uh, it, it had kind of these weird paper tapes that would spin by at very high speed with optical readers, and it was incredibly sophisticated for, for its day, and it was all done with vacuum tubes. Um, 
and of course, you know, probably read about you know in your history, like using vacuum tubes, they have a very high failure rate compared to semiconductors. And so, one of the real big challenges: could you build a like a 10,000 tube machine? What's the mean time between failure? Is it going to be you know three seconds? Is it going to last for a day? You know, how long how long will the thing run? So uh, that was a, that was a big challenge for them as well. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about this. The, the double indicators was revealing some vulnerabilities in the machine, poor choice of message keys, <coughs> and the fact that a, a letter never encrypts to itself, which allows you to have this known plain text attack. Uh, here's a better picture on the slide of the, uh, the M94, uh, which, uh, again, Jefferson actually holds the patent for this machine, but there's good, uh, strong evidence that he stole the idea from a previous French device, but he decided to patent it in the U.S. Um, now, this is an interesting machine, the M209. I'll, I'll go walk, walk over to the uh, table here again. Uh, I don't know if the, uh, is the camera operator here? There we go. Okay. So uh, the M209 was a, a World War II machine as well, so uh, like Vanna White. <laughs> and um, the, uh, this was used uh, by the U.S. Army. And uh, some interesting aspects of this machine is it's totally mechanical. It is not electromechanical, so no battery required, no power source required. Uh, the way you operate this one is you dial in. You dial in. There's a wheel here that has 26 letters on it. You dial in a letter here next to the indicator that you want to encode. Then you rotate this crank, which does a bunch of mechanical stuff inside, which has the effect of spinning this wheel some number of positions away from the original letter. And then you read, you read the result on the inside wheel over here. Um, this one does have an encode versus decode mode. Um, and uh, the way this one, it's also a, a form of a rotor machine, but it uses rotors in a different way. So this has these rotors, which are, again are the key settings. It's very complicated to set this machine up, though. There's, um, you really can't see it on the camera. But next, on the sides of each wheel, there's a little metal tab that that you push in or push to the left or push to the right of that wheel. And then what happens when you turn this thing? See this this cage back here? This cage is turning. On the cage, you have. You have little tabs here which will engage the, uh, the little strips of metal that come out of each wheel as they pass by. So in a sense, this thing is it's kind of, a, like it's a kind of an adder. Was that a question? No, it looks like a music box. Yes, kind of like that. Um, yeah, where instead of yeah. playing notes, it's yeah. actually ticking this thing forward one notch if, when it contacts it. So as you turn this cage around, there's... 25 different bars here, and so you have some chance that one of these tabs is going to engage one of these wheels at that position and then click this over by one notch. And so ultimately this thing can turn anywhere from between zero times and 25 times depending on the, set, the position of these, uh, uh, these little tabs and these pins. Um, and another interesting thing about this this one, if you'll notice how these wheels turn when I, when I uh, encode something, they all move one space. And at first glance, I was very confused by this. If every wheel is moving in lockstep in synchrony, then you're going to repeat as soon as they all come back around to the beginning again. Uh, but that doesn't happen. Does anyone, 
care to venture a guess as to why? Do they have a different radius? Uh, different radius, exactly. So each wheel has a different number of letters on it. And so they appear to be moving in synchrony. They're moving all by one letter at a time, but each wheel has, I think they're all relatively primed to each other, so they each have a different number of letters on them. So they, in fact, do go through a non-repeating sequence until you get through the entire key set. Very clever, yeah. <coughs> so um, it also has a handy... Um, a handy, I don't know if you can see that uh, little weird circular indentation. You might go, what is that for? Mm -hmm. And it's for putting it on your knee. So when you're, uh, when you're in, in battle, you would, you would put it on here, and there's actually a strap. You can connect it here, wrap it around your boot, and you can hook it up on the other side. So then you could be in your foxhole or in running through the trench and be crouching down and decoding your messages <laughs> on the run. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Much more portable, much more portable machine than an Enigma machine. This one generally took three operators: someone to read the message, someone to type the message, and then someone to read the lights and then write it down. Um, so you need like a truck, and the operators here. This one could be one. A paratrooper could drop in with one of these machines and 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 have it be very portable. Uh, what? Uh, is is it more vulnerable than Enigma, or is it? Uh, less susceptible to analysis. Um, I believe that this was the the this is called the class of machine. This is called a Hegelin type machine, and I believe it was never broken by the Germans at all. Um, and I don't know that's if if that reflects necessarily a, a much difference in in complexity. I mean, in modern days, these these have been broken, um, but uh, but I think it is generally a more secure system overall. So um, then the Swiss came out with this machine, and they called it the, the NEMA machine, or New Enigma machine. And uh, this was after the war. And they developed this machine. They added a lot more rotors here. I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine black rotors and a red rotor. And um, it's very similar in terms of like keyboard, lights. They had the innovation of many different power sources. You could. Uh, there's even a, a plug in here that you can plug into a light socket uh, to power it. If you're in your apartment, you unscrew the bulb and you can power your, your crypto machine. Um, and then the, if you notice the wheels, I don't know if you can see how the wheels are rotating here, but they are all moving all higgledy-piggledy. Um, it's not, it's not uh, odometer style at all. And in this machine, some of the rotors control how the other rotors move. And, and uh, then other rotors are purely for scrambling letters. So uh, this device was uh, a, a secret of the Swiss government until fairly recently, maybe 15 years ago, 10, 10 years ago maybe. Um, and then they declassified them and then they flooded the market with them. So if you want to collect an early kind of machine like an Enigma, this is the poor man's Enigma. You can get this for uh, a few thousand dollars instead of $20,000. in uh, these probably show up on eBay quite a bit. The M209 also shows up on eBay quite a bit. They used to be about $1,000. Now they're, I think they've gone up in price uh, recently. Um, this is another, just an example of kind of the evolution of, uh, I'll kind of come over to here again, of uh, miniaturization. Uh, this is called a CD57. So this is, a, this is your Cold War spy 
a portable crypto machine. And uh, um, I believe this was actually used into, that might even be used today in some places. Uh, uh, it was illegal in Britain to own one uh, until very recently. It might still be illegal, I'm not sure exactly. And um, uh, so you can imagine spies in South America or whatever having these things and traveling around, very portable. Um, and the, the really cool innovation is, uh, I believe that this and this, these two, they're both Hagelin type machines. There's actually a mode where they're compatible. So if I have this machine, I could send, send to this machine in, in one setting. So just like MS-DOS had to be, Windows had to be compatible with MS-DOS, the C CD57 had to be compatible with the M209. Um, and if you look inside of it, it you know, mechanically it's quite different than, than the way the, the M209 looks, but you have similarly all these wheels, letter wheels, and there are tiny little tabs on there, and you need, there's a little tool in here for you to, to, to make those settings. <coughs> and you can see here it's got a, a similar wheel. Every time you turn the crank, it rotates the code, the code wheel a certain number of spaces away from the original letter. Uh, these are all Swiss. Um, and then I have two more machines here. Uh, and I have five minutes. So, okay. so this, this machine, I've actually never operated this machine. I'm, I'm actually blanking out on its, its name right now. I, I think I might have it. Oh, there it is, a CX-52. Thank you. Um, so if you study cryptography, you know there is one provably, absolutely secure system for sending messages that cannot ever be broken, and that's called a random tape or, uh, or one-time pad system. And uh, in a random tape or one-time pad system, you basically have a code for every letter of your message that you throw away after you send that one letter and you never, ever use it again. And so you, you have to have, A, a method of generating a truly random sequence of uh, of keys or, or, or letters, and uh, B, a way of distributing them securely to the people to whom you wish to communicate with in sufficient length that they will last for as not many messages as you need to send them. So it's quite cumbersome as a system because you have to distribute these tapes, um, but, it's in, but it's totally secure. So you, As long as you have the discipline to only use the tapes once. Yes, you have to, get, you have to burn them or you presumably need to destroy them as soon as they're used. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you reuse them or like, oh, I used, I, let's just use last month's keys. <laughs> yeah, th that's a problem. And I'm, I'm sure that stuff happens, just human nature. Um, so I believe this is also, without the tape, it's compatible, I think, with these other Hagelin machines. But with the tape, it adds, it adds uh, you can, you can uh, have a, a totally random sequence applied to your code. And the last, the last one is just one. Okay, in my as a collector of these machines, I you know I got into this habit and it kind of consumed me for a while. Um, you know, I first bought the Enigma machine, uh, and then this, then then this, and um, the Enigma was actually interesting because um, I was just on an internet mailing list for people interested in Bletchley Park, and uh, uh, someone mailed the mailing list one day and said, "I've got an Enigma." And does anybody know how much they're worth? Because I'm interested in selling it. And I sent him mail back saying, I have no idea how much it's worth, but if we can find out a fair market value, I would love to buy it from you. So uh, we did some research. We found some history of some recent auctions. And uh, uh, I agreed to fly to Washington, D.C., where he was living. And he was, um, 
he told me he was uh, well, he's a Russian uh, professor, um, and he said a friend of his had given him this machine. Uh, a colleague of his had given this machine in, uh, when they worked together in uh, in Germany. So uh, um, he he had had it was a very favorite prized possession of his, but he was kind of. He needed some money for a big startup business he wanted to run, start to try to do, and uh, so he was willing to part with his machine. So that one was just luck that I found that machine. Then eBay came along, and then once you start bidding in eBay for machines like this, people kind of know who they start to remember your name, and they. Uh, uh, so then I started getting unsolicited mail from people uh, in Germany and Switzerland, uh, saying, "Oh, if you like that machine, you should see this machine I have." Um, and so, but I had someone from Switzerland send me basically this machine, this, um, and the CD57, and a couple others I have still at home. Uh, he sent me this catalog. It was just like a candy store of, <laughs> of machines that he had collected. I think he lived near the uh, the Crypto AG company, which which made all these machines, or he maybe he was associated with them. Uh, so I just said, oh, I'll take one of that, and one of that, and one of that, and they were all really fascinating. Uh, objects to have, so uh, um, uh, I bought them all. So I actually still don't even know exactly how to use some of them. Uh, but you know, this is this is yet another kind of really early uh, crypto system where you have these bars that slide and then a window that reveals letters. And I, I actually don't know how it works, but uh, it looked pretty cool. So uh, <laughs> so I said I'll take one of those too. Um, so I, with that, I think I'm done, and uh, take any questions that you guys have. So he. Yeah. Yeah, one here in the room. Uh, the question is, uh, do you know of any systems that were used in the Soviet Union at the time, or during the war? Or um, the Soviet systems, they had some. They have some teletype systems. There are. I mean, I I have been offered for sale some of those things, and they they've been on eBay. Um, and uh, I forget the names right now, but uh, kind of maxed out my budget for collecting for a while after <laughs> after gorging myself on on this stuff. Yeah. What is the market price of it? Uh, well, I I paid eighteen thousand for it, and I think it's well over twenty thousand today for this. This is also there are different types of Enigma. Uh, this one was is called a service Enigma, so it has three rotors. The reflecting rotor doesn't move and is not re interchangeable. There is a um, there is a, a naval enigma, which is called the M4 enigma, which is much more valuable. It's probably more like a $40,000 machine. I have one of those as well, uh, but I don't travel with it. And uh, it has a uh, fourth wheel here, which doesn't rotate in the sense of the notch. It has no notch, but you can set it at any of 26 different positions, including it's called the beta rotor. And uh, uh, that rotor, again, has a compatibility mode, so if you set it in the A position, it acts just like the old three-rotor Enigma, so it's compatible, but then you can shift it around to, to 25 different positions. And they use that on the, the military, the U-boats, and uh, uh, in, the, in the war in the Atlantic, the, that was the machine that was used for that. It's the, really the most famous version of the Enigma, and most rare. Uh, I also have another device for the Enigma called an Ur, uh, or clock, and um, it was used to. Uh, um, it's like a. It's like a. It's a weird adaptation on here. You plug it into all the plugs in the plug board, and it's like a crazy kind of. It's a way of of changing your plug board settings every hour very conveniently. So you just kind of turn this little wheel, 
and, it, and they just have internally wired a whole new set of plugboard settings. And so it's for applications where you need to change keys very rapidly and want to do it frequently, and so you can plug in an OOR into this and, and change it. So it's, it's weird how things evolve, and uh, you, know, you get layers of complexity on top of like otherwise or, you know, simple systems to try to improve them. Yeah, pretty soon you have Vista and uh, five years. Pardon me? There was this kind of printer you put on top of it, right? I, I'm not sure of an Enigma printer. Maybe, I don't know. That's something on Wikipedia. I, I have another device which was like an, a, a I have a, one version of an Enigma. I think it was a commercial Enigma that has like a remote console, a remote set of lights. So I assume that was used so like what the person who's typing the code is not the person who sees the message and someone else can see it across. Hmm? Uh, in this uh, uh, Swiss machine, there's also a second set of lights in the box. Oh, those are spare lights. Spares. The, the Enigma also has a place to put spare lights in here. The first thing I did when I got the Enigma was to buy spares for all the original light bulbs and uh, happened to find you know one that fit pretty well, and, and so I didn't want to burn out the authentic original lights. So Mike, does have a plan. Any uh, perfect questions? Doesn't San Diego. Like Thank you. Yeah, I got a question. San Diego. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, I guess the security <laughs> is called Ultra, right? It's supposed to be above, like, the top, top uh, secret security clearance they had to work on these. The people that... But what I was curious about, they had, like, a 50-year classification on this. But then in '74 they declassed it. I was just wondering why it became so quick to say, okay, you know, this is supposed to be the super high secure thing, but uh, and then apparently someone I can't remember who, but someone said, oh, we don't want to tell the Germans that we broke their code. Never tell them that, because then they'll say that we beat them unfairly, something like that. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know about fair or unfair. But <laughs> do you know anything about that? Like why it just became quickly Well, I mean, I think probably because they realized it didn't really have much more value to the government at that point. Um, once these machines became out of circulation, uh, the, the <coughs> fact that those were decoded by Britain was, you know, it had kind of leaked out. I think there were certain books uh, written about telling the story that there were some decoding efforts and uh, even before the official uh, acknowledgement of it. And... Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it just basically didn't have any value anymore. Um, Britain is pretty, pretty uh, hard-nosed about maintaining security for a long time. It, it's kind of surprising that they, they had such a long, uh, long uh, classification of it, I think. Just, uh, it's pretty obvious that everyone's trying to read everyone else's mail, even though gentlemen are not supposed to do so. so uh, ah. San Diego. No more. Nope. Okay. I, uh, Berkeley has a question. All right. Um, Winston Churchill asked for the destruction or had the destruction of the Colossus. What's the story behind what happened to it? And I saw a part. There's one at the Computer History Museum. But why? Why was it totally destroyed? And, and uh, well, uh, they destroyed most of Bletchley Park and destroyed most of those records. And um, you know, after the war, they they again wanted to maintain as much secrecy as possible. I mean, a lot went into uh, uh, trying to make you know sure that the Germans didn't even suspect that their codes were broken during the war, and you know I'm sure they want to maintain that as long as possible. Uh, I, I'm not specifically 
I don't have specific knowledge about the Colossus. I do know that Bletchley Park has re rebuilt an entire replica of the Colossus machine, um, and I believe it's functional. They have a functional replica. I've not visited myself, but I'd love to go there someday. Um, so there is there is now a museum there, and part of the original Black uh, uh, Park site as is starting to be developed, and there there was an effort to try to make it a national monument so that the original. Uh, I think Hut 6, and they have different names of huts where different parts of the uh, cryptanalytic effort were, were uh, carried out. So they're trying to preserve as much as they can. There's original kind of a uh, castle or a, you know, a manor house, and then there were these different huts around uh, where people would work. Um, it's like an estate kind of thing. And, and just for well, the record... Let's let San Diego have a question. There was one in San Diego, was there? Yeah, question? Yeah. So, uh, how might the Colossus have influenced subsequent computer architectures if it hadn't been covered up? Um, well, I think that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, secrecy does delay innovation if people can't copy what you're doing. Um, but, you know, like most innovations in the world, uh, it's pretty rare to invent something totally out of whole cloth where the idea isn't imminently uh, attainable by somebody else who's concentratedly thinking about it. So Sorry, I could be totally wrong, but I my impression was Colossus was not a general purpose machine. I I'm I'm not 100 percent sure about it, but yeah, I I don't know. It. I have a feeling it was <laughs> a uh, it was sort of an idiot savant cracking code. Yeah, I I think Colossus had some components of stored programming in it, but uh, I'm not 100 percent sure. It was programmable with plugs. Maybe with plugs. Somebody was able to program it to do some generic stuff, but it was uh, yeah. mostly. But I, you know, I think it probably delayed some innovation, but uh, you know, yeah, I don't think you can stop an uh, inevitable idea like building a computer once you have electronic circuits and other kind of expertise like that. Okay, is there a last question anywhere? Perfect. So uh, let me, before we thank Mike one last time, I remind everybody to please turn in the course evaluations. If you'd like the class, turn in two or three. Um, <laughs> factor, we'll collect the ones in this room. Uh, I want to thank the tech staff, Rod and Fred here in the folks at Berkeley and San Diego for making this happen. And uh, Mike, thank you.